Today we're going to discuss Hume and his views on the standard of taste. <clears throat> and uh, with this lecture, it's the first lecture in which we're going to be discussing beauty uh, at any great length. And we'll also be covering this in the Kant lecture, uh, which I think is probably going to extend over two lectures. I don't think it's realistic to do the critique of judgment in just one lecture. Uh, so tomorrow we'll do Kant as well, and that will probably continue into next week, in all likelihood. Um, if any of you have done ethics, uh, particularly meta-ethics, you'll be already familiar with some of the issues that are going to arise here. Uh, so one of the common questions in philosophy about both moral value and aesthetic value is about the reality of it and the nature of it. And a lot of very well worked out positions in meta-ethics that you can take on these questions. It's worth pointing out that regarding Hume that uh, he is not, at least he claims, doubting the existence of beautiful objects, of beauty. His claim is a claim about the nature uh, of beauty. And so I'm going to begin with some of his background views on beauty because his views on the nature of beauty are going to be important for understanding his views on the standard of taste. Now whether he can maintain this view that he's not doubting the existence or reality of beauty uh, while alongside his view on its nature is another question. Uh, but I think we can distinguish between three important theses that emerge in Hume's other work, particularly in his essay The Skeptic and in some of his moral writings and other writings. The first is this claim that you get stated in various ways that beauty is not a quality objects have in themselves. Now, this is a very common view the 18th century. In standard of taste, he doesn't even repeat any arguments for it. Uh, he does give some arguments for it in his essay, The Skeptic. And if any of you are familiar with Hume's views on moral value, uh, you'll be reminded in some ways of his take on that in his views on beauty. And similarly, uh, there are similarities between his views on beauty and his views on causal necessity. He runs abbreviated versions, uh, in effect, of some of the arguments he runs for those matters on beauty. So one of the considerations, in fact, the main consideration he really offers in The Skeptic is the thought that you can know or explain all of the qualities that a thing has without either knowing or having explained anything about its beauty. So he gives a number of examples of this kind. Uh, he talks about the circle and says Euclid has mentioned all the properties of the circle uh, but has said nothing of its beauty. The reason is evident. Beauty is not a property of the circle. It doesn't consist in any of the relations between the parts or anything that Euclid has picked out. Similarly, in his inquiry concerning the principles of morals, he talks about architecture. And he mentions the architectural treatises written at that time, which talk about the kinds of relations that each of the parts of the orders of architecture have to have to one another. And he says, if you ask Palladio or Perrault, these architectural writers, where is the beauty in all of these relations? They'd say, it's not in any of them. Uh, and where is it? Well, Hume says, naturally, it is in the sentiment of the person who looks at these things. So this is on the grounds that 
It's not until you feel a sentiment on looking at a thing's properties that you become aware of its beauty. <clears throat> Excuse me. And therefore, as Hume puts it in various ways, beauty lies in the sentiment, beauty consists in an agreeable sentiment. Uh, these are somewhat obscure ways of putting things because taken at the word, it sounds a bit like he's saying that it's sentiments that are beautiful, not objects. Uh, but he never draws that implication out. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult to understand quite how this claim is to be understood, the claim that beauty lies in the sentiment. Doesn't mean beauty is a property of the sentiment. Somehow it consists in an agreeable sentiment. What is clear is that we don't notice that something's beautiful until we have a sentiment. And that's supposed to uh, be evidence, in addition to the other considerations, that it's not a property objects have in themselves. Uh, nevertheless, and this is the third point, uh, Hume is well aware that we think of beauty as a property that objects have in themselves. And this third point uh, has to do with uh, what is related to what he says about causal necessity as well. So he phrases it in a number of ways, one of which is on the back of the handout. So the first quotation, and this is from the skeptic. Objects have absolutely no worth or value in themselves. They derive their worth merely from the passion. Who is not sensible that power and glory and vengeance are not desirable of themselves, but derive all their value from the structure of human passions, which begets a desire towards such particular pursuits? But with regard to beauty, either natural or moral, the case is commonly supposed to be different. The agreeable quality is thought to lie in the object, not in the sentiment. And that merely because the sentiment is not so turbulent and violent as to distinguish itself in an evident manner from the perception of the object. So this is one claim he makes, partly by way of explanation of why we think that beauty is a property of the object itself. Namely, that the sentiment in which it consists is a very calm one. And he thinks that we're confusing that calm sentiment with a perception of something in the object. And in later work, he elaborates this notion. And this is in the second quotation from the inquiry. The distinct boundaries and offices of reason and taste are easily ascertained. The former conveys the knowledge of truth and falsehood. The latter gives the sentiment of beauty and deformity, vice and virtue. The one discovers objects as they really stand in nature, without addition and diminution. The other has a productive faculty. And gilding or staining all natural objects with the colors borrowed from internal sentiment raises in a manner a new creation. So it seems like what he's saying is that we, in some sense, project onto objects when we find them beautiful. So it's not just the claim that beauty is not a property in the object or that it lies in the sentiment, whatever that amounts to, but that in addition we sort of project gild or stain objects with the colors borrowed from that sentiment. Now this sort of view raises a number of questions. Um, I mean, it can probably be best on, understood by analogy with what he says about causal necessity. So he says, we often think that necessity resides in objects that stand in causal relations as well. Even though our idea of necessity just comes from our feeling of expectation we get when we see an object of one kind appear that has always been followed by an object of another kind. 
When that happens, we have a tendency to imagine an object of the other kind. And it's this inclination or tendency, uh, this feeling, that we project onto the object. And that accounts for our view that necessity is a property of the object. I take it that he thinks some sort of mechanism like that is at work here. And in each case, it sort of raises the question, uh, how can he say that there is some reality to beauty in these cases? So it looks like he's not willing to say in the causal case that necessity is a property of a tendency, for example. And of course, it's not a property of the object. It's something we project onto it. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be a property of anything. And likewise with beauty. He doesn't, and he shouldn't, say that it's only sentiments that have the property of being beautiful, but he explicitly denies as well that it's objects that have the property of being beautiful. What is true is that there's an agreeableness to the sentiment, and that kind of sentiment gets projected onto the object. But that's rather different from anything ending up with the property of beauty. So there's at, le there's at least the appearance of a difficulty here, and it's not so clear that he can uh, say what he does say in the third quotation, which again is from the skeptic. So he says, Were I not afraid of appearing too philosophical, I should remind my reader of that famous doctrine, supposed to be fully proved in modern times. The tastes and colors and all other sensible qualities lie not in the bodies, but merely in the senses. The case is the same with beauty and deformity, virtue and vice. This doctrine, however, and this is the key bit, takes off no more reality from the takes off no more from the reality of the latter qualities than from that of the former. Nor need it give any umbrage to either to critics or moralists. Though colors were allowed to lie only in the eye, would dyers or painters ever be less regarded or esteemed? There is a sufficient uniformity in the senses and feelings of mankind to make all these qualities the objects of art and reasoning, and to have the greatest influence on life and manners. And as it is certain that the discovery above mentioned in natural philosophy makes no alteration on action and conduct, why should a like discovery in moral philosophy make any alteration? So this is a comparison that he's going to come back to in the standard of taste between beauty on the one hand and secondary qualities like color and flavor on the other. But there's a couple peculiarities of what he said, about what he says in this passage. So when the quote he gives here, I don't know who it's from, uh, if, it, if from anybody, that tastes and colors and all other sensible qualities lie not in the bodies but merely in the senses. Locke famously described colors and flavors as secondary qualities as opposed to primary qualities. But Locke did not deny that objects are colored. What Locke said was that the color of objects is a power to produce an idea or might more accurately be described as a visual impression in us. And that visual impression has certain appearance properties uh, that don't resemble anything in the object. But that's very different from saying that there's no color in the object. Because in Locke's view, color in the object is a power to produce a visual impression that has certain appearance properties uh, that don't themselves resemble anything in the object. Uh, so the thing he quotes here 
would not be an accurate representation of Locke's view. Locke's view is there's nothing resembling the quality of our visual impression in the object. It's not that objects aren't colored, it's just that what it is for them to be colored is for them to have the power to produce this kind of visual impression. And this sort of view, now I'm not saying he has to follow Locke, obviously, maybe he's talking about a different view of secondary qualities. But at least with Locke, you can point to something that is unambiguously describable as colored. With Hume, it's not so clear, because if you don't want to say the sentiment is beautiful, and if you don't want to say the object is beautiful, then it's not clear, if you don't want to say the beauty is in the object, I should say, it's not quite clear how we should understand this, and how he can maintain that beauty, uh, that this view takes nothing off the reality of beautiful objects, of beauty, that is. Okay, so this is the background to his essay on the standard of taste. And one reason why Hume's view on the standard of taste is attractive to a lot of people is that it seems to offer a way to reconcile two opposing views. So the first is the view that out there in the world, there's no values, there's no beauty, no goodness, etc. Things don't have those qualities in themselves. And yet you can get these things wrong. People can be wrong about uh, what, and right, that is. There can be standards about whether something is beautiful or good. So he seems to offer us a way which has attracted a lot of people both in aesthetics and in ethics of having both of these positions. The denial of the reality of these sort of metaphysically dubious or spooky, according to some, properties like beauty and goodness out there in the world, along with the maintenance of standards for judgments of these things. Now, the motivation that Hume identifies for seeking the standard of taste is the observation that people frequently disagree about the beauty of an object. So what it is for them to disagree, of course, is for them to have different sentiments about the same object. And he really stresses this at the start. If you look across cultures, and within cultures, and within your own social circle, you will find widely divergent views, very divergent sentiments about which objects are beautiful, or whether some particular object is beautiful. Furthermore, it's not just that we differ, but that we argue. So we are inclined to condemn sentiments that disagree with our own. And this naturally makes us wonder, or at least makes the more reflective among us wonder, if there is some way of justifying our sentiment. If there's some way, some grounds for condemning sentiments that differ from our own. And this is what Hume attempts to provide. What he says a standard of taste is, is the following. He says... It is a rule by which the various sentiments of men may be reconciled, at least a decision afforded, confirming one sentiment and condemning another. So ideally, it's a way of ending these disputes. At minimum, it should be a way of figuring out who's right in each of them. 
That's the ambition. Now it's worth noting here that he's not saying I'm trying to define beauty. Now I don't mean that he wouldn't accept this as his definition of beauty or say that this is what it is for something to be beautiful. That is at least the thing that he's going to go on to say. Uh, but it's worth noting that he wouldn't need to do that in order to get this thing, a rule enabling us to figure out who is right. All you need then, all you need for that was some reliable detector of beauty or of a condemnable sentiment, some criterion by which you can tell that one side is wrong and the other side is right. Not something as ambitious as a definition of beauty. As again, I'm not saying this is not a definition of beauty on his view, but what he explicitly says it's a, is that it's a way of reconciling these views, a way of finding a way to condemn certain sentiments, confirm others. Uh, that can be important at certain points uh, when we're thinking about what kinds of criticisms Hume is subject to. Okay, well, immediately having presented this possibility, he then considers an objection to the very possibility of finding a standard of taste. And he says this is an objection drawn from common sense. In fact, it's drawn from a number of philosophical considerations as well. And it's worth, when you're thinking about this objection, uh, being aware of which parts of it Hume accepts and which parts he does not. People often read this as, misread this as something that Hume accepts wholesale. He accepts a lot of it, but not all of it. Now, the objection basically is that it's not possible to condemn sentiments. This rule that's supposed to enable us to do this, therefore, can't be found. And the reasons given, I think you can identify at least three in this passage. The first of which is that sentiments cannot be condemned for misrepresenting the world. So sentiments unlike judgments, don't represent the world as being a certain way. So if you judge that the cat is on the mat, that represents the world as being a certain way. And if the cat's not on the mat, it misrepresents the world. But sentiments aren't like that. Sentiments aren't representational. So they can't misrepresent the world, and therefore they can't be condemned for misrepresenting the world. Another reason they can't be condemned is they cannot be condemned for marking a relation between the mind and the object that's not there. So although sentiments don't represent the way things are, they do mark or signal, as Hume puts it, a relation or conformity between the mind and the object. But of course, if the sentiment occurs at all, then that relation exists. And so they can't mark a relation in this way that's not actually there. And so you can't condemn them for marking a relation that's not actually there. Now those two points are true of sentiments generally. Sentiments of beauty, in particular, cannot be condemned for occurring in the absence of beauty in the object. Because beauty doesn't exist in the object as we discussed. So all sentiments of beauty occur in the absence of beauty in the object. And moreover, beauty exists in a sentiment. And so it's not a bad thing that all these sentiments of beauty occur in the absence of beauty in the object. They can't be condemned for occurring in the absence of beauty in the object. 
So they can't be condemned on those grounds either. So it seems like it's not possible at all to condemn sentiments. Now, as I say, Hume represents this as a sort of objection from common sense. It's the view that uh, tastes can't be disputed about. But his reply is that it's at least as well supported by common sense to suppose that at least some sentiments can be condemned. And he argues from some famous examples here. He says, anybody who would think that the minor Scottish poet John Ogilby and the 17th century English Puritan John Bunyan were as good as Joseph Addison and John Milton, or indeed who preferred them to those guys, would have ridiculous and absurd sentiments. And that's at least as clear, he thinks, as the considerations advanced in the objection. Now, he's not denying a lot of what the objection says, as I mentioned at the start. So he agrees that sentiments can't be condemned on any of the grounds mentioned in the objection. So he's not going to go there. He even adds something. He adds that uh, it may be that when objects are nearly equal in value and people's sentiments diverge, then we can't say that one side is right and one side is wrong. But he says it's at least clear that at least some sentiments can be condemned, like these ones. And that's at least as clear as anything presented in the objection, and so the hunt is on for a standard enabling us to do this. Now famously, the standard, he states, is that the standard of taste is the joint verdict, and a verdict here is again something based on sentiment, of all critics who are free of certain obstructions. And we'll get into what those obstructions are in a moment. But that's the general shape of it, is that standard is going to be not the mere occurrence of a sentiment, but the occurrence of a sentiment in the right kinds of people. And conformity with that sentiment is, or lack of conformity with that sentiment, more to the point, is what enables sentiments to be condemned. Now, it's not exactly transparent what his argument for this view is. Um, I think you can identify two for this general view, and then he goes on to argue in particular for what the obstructions are. Uh, but the first, I think, is what I've described in the handout as the argument from beauty's capacity to please universally. So a key premise for Hume is that beautiful objects can please anyone. They at least have the capacity to please anyone. Not that they always do, in fact, but they at least have that capacity. And he gives a number of considerations in support of this. So one is kind of quaint, but uh, he talks about the rules of composition. So the rules by which writing can be guided. The rules, if you follow which, will enable you to write beautifully. He says, these rules are just observations about what has pleased at all times and in all periods of history. And in fact, if you find something that's, if you find a counterexample to them, uh, then you have to revise the rules, because what they're aiming at is to get at what has pleased you know, at all times and in all periods of history. 
So that's one consideration that's supposed to suggest that beauty at least has the capacity to please universally. Another consideration is from examples, such as Homer. It's one of his examples, uh, pointing out that genuinely beautiful objects have, in fact, pleased in a wide diversity of ages and cultures. Homer being an example. And I think it's on this basis that he is convinced that beautiful works at least have this capacity to please everyone. He's got to face the fact, of course, that they don't. In fact, the very fact that he stressed at the beginning. Uh, a lot of the time, genuinely beautiful objects don't please everyone who sees them. And the thought is, uh, so his next point is that, is to establish that many obstructions prevent beautiful works from actually actualizing this capacity. And again, he gives a number of points in favor of this. So one of them is he considers what it is that we do when we try to determine that an object is beautiful. He says we try and get into the right state of mind. We try and be calm, pay attention to the object. It seems like we have to do a lot to prepare in order to judge an object accurately. That's supposed to suggest that there's loads of possible obstructions in place, and we have to make sure that they're absent. Another reason, in support of the view that there are lots of obstructions preventing beauty from pleasing everyone, is based on the test of time. So we often point to the fact that a work has survived and been enjoyed in all kinds of eras as evidence that it is beautiful. And he thinks the reason we do this, at least this is how I read this passage, is to see whether it still pleases once fashion, prejudice, and authority have fallen away. That's why the test of time is a good test of beauty, is that it's a test to see whether it pleases even when these various obstructions have fallen away. That, again, seems to imply that there are lots of obstructions to beauty's capacity to please everyone. And so I think that it's on this basis that he concludes the standard of taste has got to be the sentiment of everyone free of certain obstructions. Because everyone who is free of these obstructions will like it. Can please everyone, but only provided they're free from the obstructions. Now, the second argument that I detect in this essay is based on further comparison with secondary qualities. In the essay, it's particularly colors and flavors. So this, I take it to be an argument by analogy. Colors and flavors, he says, if you think about it, are in all relevant respects similar to beauty. So as we saw, colors and flavors are not qualities that objects have in themselves. That's a key thing. Colors and flavors are in the mind. And, and this is particularly important, some people are not qualified to give verdicts about colors and flavors, despite the fact that they're not in the object and that they're only in the mind. Examples, someone with jaundice not in a position to judge concerning colors. Someone with a fever, not in a position to judge concerning flavors. 
In these relevantly similar cases, the standard of judgment is the response of a person free of certain obstructions. So, with healthy eyes, healthy palate. And that, I take it, is supposed to support the view that the case is similar with beauty. Now, it's an interesting question how much weight he's putting on this analogy. Uh, as I say, he's not so explicit about it. The implication may be that, well, what other standard could there be if there's a standard at all? When you've got something that's not a property in the object, <clears throat> but rather in the mind, uh, and yet there are standards. What other standard could there be except the response of a person of a particularly specified kind? Uh, that may be the implication, as I say. So this is the thought, that that's got to be the general shape of the standard of taste. And then he argues for what these obstructions are in the case of taste. Number one, lack of what he calls delicacy. Now delicacy appears to be uh, the ability to detect features that are hard to detect. So subtle features of an artwork. And this is relevant, lack of delicacy is an obstruction, because beautiful works often please in virtue of hard to detect features. That's interesting why he thinks this. So again, he appeals to something that is a little bit a little bit quaint again. So he said he takes it to explain why it's possible to use general principles to convince somebody that something's beautiful when they didn't initially like it. So what he imagines is going on here is that we show a person some feature which is known to please universally. So there's a principle that says anything with this feature pleases universally. And which pleases him when it's present in a high degree. And we point out that it's present in a small degree in the work that he doesn't like. Hume thinks he's got to agree that the thing is beautiful. And he says it wouldn't be possible, the implies that is, wouldn't be possible for this procedure to work or to be convincing if delicacy weren't needed to perceive beauty or to get the appropriate sentiment. Now, as I say, this is a, a little quaint because he's so confident that you can argue somebody into agreeing with you about, about the beauty of an object. And as we'll see tomorrow, Kant explicitly denies this. Uh, and it's been a sort of one of the main questions in aesthetics is whether you can establish that something is beautiful by any means other than seeing it and feeling something. Whether an argument could actually be used to justify the view or even to prove the view that something's beautiful. As we'll see, Kant is going to deny this. Hume, again, strangely enough, takes it for granted. in the course of trying to show that delicacy is relevant. Next obstruction is lack of practice. So practice here has two aspects. First of all, the critic needs practice contemplating other artworks of the same kind, and as he puts it, other species of the same uh, kind of beauty. And he says, if we don't have this, then our sentiments will be obscure and confused. 
Uh, we won't perceive the work's merits. We won't know what kinds of merits they are. And we won't know how great a merit each one is. All of this you can only detect if you have experience in other work, artworks of that kind. That's one aspect of practice, as I say. Another aspect is repeatedly perusing the work that you are attempting to judge. Because if you don't do that, he says, you may not perceive the work's merits clearly. In an interesting passage, he says, there is a flutter or hurry of thought that attends the first perusal of a work. And he says that makes the sentiment a bit obscure. So you have to look at it repeatedly to stop your thought from fluttering, I guess. But at least the thought is that you're going to be better enabled to perceive the work's merits much more clearly. And furthermore, you can make sure that the beauty is not a superficial kind. Some kinds of beauty please at the first viewing, but not at others. And again, if one of the marks of a genuinely beautiful object is that it can please at different times and ages, that's going to be quite relevant. And into the mix, he throws the consideration that practice is the best way to acquire delicacy, which is one of the, as we've established, necessary traits of a critic. So a third thing is what he describes as comparison. So if you're unable to compare a work with many others, then inferior works often seem much better than they are. Now this is a bit similar to John Stuart Mill's discussion of higher pleasures. He says, how can you tell between two pleasures whether one is higher than another, intrinsically better than another? The only way is to ask somebody who's experienced both and ask them which they prefer. And if they all agree that A is better than B, then A is a higher pleasure than B. Very similar thing going on here in this qualification of comparison. Fourthly, prejudice is an obstruction. And prejudice is, he understands in a kind of idiosyncratic way. So he thinks that beautiful works can cause the appropriate sentiments only in people who put themselves in the mindset of the audience that the work was originally addressing. So he gives the example of oratory. So a speech in ancient times, uh, at any time, but he's particularly thinking of ancient orators, uh, is addressed to a particular audience and for a particular purpose. And you won't be able to tell whether it's beautiful unless you put yourself in their shoes. That's what will enable the appropriate sentiment of beauty to come about. And more generally, works addressed to other ages or cultures. He thinks you have to put yourself into the shoes of the people in those ages and cultures before you can tell whether they're genuinely beautiful. You test to see whether it pleases once you adopt their mindset. And interestingly as well, and this prefigures another thing in Kant, he thinks any work addressed to the public uh, as opposed to, I guess, particular subset of the public is such that you must forget all things that are unique to you and, as he puts it, consider yourself as a man in general and see if it pleases you then. So his examples are if you're friends with the author or enemies of the author, forget that, got to leave that aside and see if the work causes a sentiment of beauty in you then. Yeah? Uh, 
Doesn't this undermine his claim that he makes earlier that beautiful things must please universally? Well, remember, this, this is one of the obstructions that keeps them from pleasing. So the claim earlier was only that they had the capacity to please universally. Uh, and they will please universally if you're free of these obstructions. And one of the obstructions is not putting yourself in the shoes of a man in general or the audience originally dressed. Does that make sense? Wait, so you're not supposed to put yourself in the mindset of the audience, or you are? Uh, I may be using a double negative here. <laughs> uh, not putting yourself in those shoes is an obstruction. So prejudice is an obstruction. What you ought to do is put yourself in the shoes of that person. And that's how you get, that'll be the appropriate test for beauty there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Yeah, so it would imply, along with that, that over time everyone can put themselves in the shoes of the original audience uh, when you put those two claims together. But what That's if someone right. isn't consciously putting themselves in somebody's shoes? What if somebody reads Homer and you know, just reads it rather than and still enjoys it? So it's not saying it can't please okay. if you don't do this, but that's not the standard of taste. So the standard of taste is if it does please when you do put yourself in their shoes. Uh, the other kinds of pleasure are not really relevant to determining whether it's beautiful. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, you mentioned that um, you meant to put yourself in the shoes of the intended audience. So does that mean that various works of art can be intended for a more like, widely public audience? For example, Homer might have written just for the world as opposed to for a specific target leadership. Oh, that's a good point. Um, I mean, I don't think it relies on the claim that every that no work of art is written for the world. Um, it does rely on the claim that at least some works of art are not written for the whole world. They're written for some particular bit of it. And it's them you have to relate to in that case. So in this case, you have to put yourself in the position of the audience it's written for as opposed to the uh, uh, Yes, the audience in general in that case. He talks about the public and he seems to have in mind when he talks about a man in general, contemporary works as opposed to more distant ones, like that. I mean, this, this view prefigures what we'll see in Kant, the view that it's about disinterested pleasure, what he's going to describe as disinterested pleasure. It's not exactly the same as this, but it's going to prove to be an extremely influential view. Um, and the final obstruction is lack of good sense, kind of unsurprisingly. Good sense is needed uh, to discern the pleasing relations between the parts of the work, to see how well the work is fitted for its purpose, and also to understand any reasoning the work contains. And good sense here just seems to be kind of a general intelligence um, here. Uh, it's also needed to free oneself from prejudice, he thinks, which is another reason why you need it. So the thought is, the standard of taste is the joint verdict of critics with these five characteristics. Good sense, freedom from prejudice, comparison, practice, and delicacy. Now a question arises here, is how many disputes can this standard settle? Or is it supposed to settle? 
And he raised a number of considerations that are relevant to this. So, obviously we can only use this standard if we can identify critics who have these five characteristics. And he says, maybe that'll be a problem. And that would not be so good, because that would defeat the purpose of this whole project. But he says, an advantage here is that whereas questions about a thing's beauty are questions of sentiment, the question of whether a person has these characteristics is a question of fact. So we don't determine whether somebody has these characteristics by having a sentiment. We determine it in the ordinary way, or ways that we determine other questions of fact, by assembling evidence, arguing about it, these sorts of things. So the great advantage we've ended up with is that we seem to be on firm ground again. Is you first identify in the standard way who has these characteristics and then find out what their verdict is. Then you can find out which things are genuinely beautiful. And he thinks there's a number of ways of identifying them. So the soundness of their understanding, as he puts it, shows their good sense. So you can tell whether somebody's generally intelligent, uh, quite apart from questions about beauty. So too, if they point out some subtle features of a work that you didn't notice before and help you enjoy them, then you can tell, well, they are evidently uh, have greater delicacy than I do. And he also interestingly talks about the ascendant which they acquire in society. So the lasting influence they have on society's tastes. Now, I think the reason he thinks that this is uh, a way of telling who is a true critic relates to what he says before about how uh, great works of art will last for a long time. So he says, a superficial work of art won't stay in favor for too, too long, at least as he puts it, in a civilized society. If a critic then it's, uh, prefers certain works of art and those preferences stay durable, we can tell, ah, that guy was a true critic because his preferences wouldn't have stayed in favor if he had hit on bad works of art. He's got, he's got good taste because his preferences have endured among society. So that's the thought about identifying them. But another point, and this is often misunderstood, is... Uh, that there are some differences in sentiment that this standard can't be used to resolve, and that Hume is perfectly upfront about them not about it not being able to be used for this purpose. So, in particular, what happens if true critics differ in their sentiments about the same work? And Hume even thinks that this is bound to happen because he thinks that we can't help preferring an author who is similar to us. Nor can we help preferring works that portray customs that are familiar to us. And so he thinks the true critic won't be able to help preferring works like this. And so you'll get two critics of different te temperaments or from different cultures uh, ranking the works differently. So one preferring, this famous example, Ovid to Tacitus because he's a young man and his passions are warm 
and Ovid write, writes love poetry. Tacitus is a desiccated old historian, whereas 50-year-old man prefers Tacitus. Now, the bit about this that I say is often misunderstood is that, and what's often not, not often remarked, is that Hume is explicit that he thinks differences of these kinds are only differences in the degree of pleasure that you can get, that these true critics get, from different works. So they're not cases of one true critic liking the work and another not liking the work. So it's not that the old guy doesn't like Ovid at all. He gets the sentiment of beauty from Ovid, but less intensely than he used to. So that's a very important qualification because what it means is that the standard of taste is still perfectly good as a standard for determining which objects are beautiful, if Hume's right. Uh, and his concession here is only that it doesn't always tell us or give an answer to how beautiful it is relative to another work. So there is no answer, there's no fact of the matter about, in this case, whether Ovid is better than Tacitus or vice versa. And the last feature of the essay that, again, has confused a number of people, uh, is the discussion at the very end. So. I think what he's doing here is providing examples of controversies that he thinks the standard of taste can settle. So among them, <clears throat> representing strange customs. He thinks if we accept this standard, we can show that representing strange or unfamiliar customs does not diminish a work's beauty. And the reason for that is that it doesn't stop a true critic from enjoying it. Because remember the true critic free from prejudice. Now, why might somebody think that it does? I'm not really sure, but he, in connection with this, refers to what was then called the dispute over the ancients versus the moderns, which was a dispute over whether modern learning had exceeded ancient learning, uh, whether we knew more now than the Romans did or the Greeks. That was, again, a very live dispute at the time. And so he thinks that his standard can shed some light on that kind of thing with that example. However, there's limits to this. So he thinks this standard also shows that immorality in a work does diminish its beauty. So at least if it is portrayed without condemning it. And the reason for that is that Immorality, at least if the true critic recognizes, recognizes it, cannot please the true critic. It can't cause a pleasurable sentiment in the true critic. And this is something that's puzzled a lot of people, uh, this phenomenon, which has been called the puzzle of imaginative resistance. Why is it that artworks can ask us to imagine that time travel is possible or uh, that Alice went down the rabbit hole and had all kinds of these 
adventures, but we won't accept a world, we won't accept being asked to imagine a world in which genocide is okay, or wanton cruelty is great. Uh, we don't seem to accept the request to imagine a world in which moral truths are radically different from what they are. So that uh, is something that Hume has picked up on, and I think the point of mentioning it is to say that because of this, won't please the true critic, and that shows that immorality diminishes beauty. And he closes by considering error, speculative errors. So he thinks errors, for example, in religion, with certain striking exceptions, uh, don't diminish the work's beauty, because everybody makes mistakes in religion and in philosophy, and it's not hard for a true critic to put himself in the shoes of somebody who's made those mistakes. So those mistakes don't diminish, don't prevent them from feeling pleasure. With the one exception of superstition. He thinks superstition is a particularly ridiculous or galling type of error that the true critic uh, won't be able to put himself into the mindset of or won't be able to get over. And I think he, compared, he closes by saying how ridiculous it is that uh, Boccaccio thanks God and the ladies for protecting him, uh, offering them his, their protection. Uh, that sort of thing, he thinks, the true critic just won't be able to get over. Uh, Alright, so those are, I think, the main points that he makes here. In the little time we have left, uh, I'd like to mention just a few of the objections that have often been raised to this. One obvious objection is, how does he know, and what kind of evidence has he given us, that beautiful objects will please everybody with these five characteristics? Similarly, but this is a distinct point, how does he know that beautiful objects have the capacity to please everyone? Is that an empirical claim supported by experience? Or is it part of what it is to be beautiful that it has the capacity to please everyone? As we'll see tomorrow, Kant thinks that it's the latter that it's not an empirical claim that beautiful works have the capacity to please everyone. It's just part of what it is for something to be beautiful, that it has this capacity. Nothing could count as beautiful if it didn't have this capacity. So that raises an interesting question, how does Hume conceive of this claim? If you need to go now, you can. But I'm just going to mention one last objection, which is a pretty standard one. And that's the claim that the standard of taste is circular. So the objection goes that if indeed this is supposed to help us identify the beautiful objects, then to, the claim seems to be to identify beautiful objects, we need to identify true critics. But how do we identify true critics? They just seem to be the ones who, well, identify the beautiful objects correctly. So we've got to know that they've identified the beautiful objects correctly to know that they're the true critics. 
But that's what we wanted to find out in the first place, namely, which objects are the beautiful objects. So if we need to know that already before we can find out who's a true critic, knowing who is a true critic is not going to help us find out which objects are beautiful. Now, Peter Kivy has written a well-known response to this objection. So he grants part of it. He thinks that we can't determine whether critics uh, have practice or uh, have comparison, have the ability to compare works, at least in the way Hume describes these characteristics, unless we already know which objects are beautiful. And that's because Hume says practice involves contemplating other species of beauty and comparing a work with the several species of excellence that they've seen and to know whether they've seen those things we've got to know whether those things are those things that they've seen are beautiful however the other three characteristics are not like this so delicacy and Hume effectively makes this point something we can determine whether somebody's got whether we know what's beautiful or not good sense freedom from prejudice similarly seem to avoid the circularity now I myself don't really think the objection or Kivy's response to it are successful so take Kivy's response uh, what it seems to require is that Hume drop the requirement of practice and comparison in good critics and then he's left with the claim that beautiful objects will please anyone who has good sense, uh, delicacy, and is free from prejudice. Regardless of how much practice they have with artworks. Regardless of how much experience they have with works of art. And so that doesn't seem plausible. And if Hume were to adjust his position in that way, he would just end up with a new problem. He'd avoid the circularity objection, but he'd end up with the implausible claim that anybody delicate enough, intelligent enough, and free from prejudice will be a standard of taste, will be a true critic. And that just doesn't seem plausible. You do need experience with artworks a lot of the time in order to figure out which ones are good, if you can figure out which ones are good at all. Uh, however, I don't think that the circularity objection is a good objection either. So Hume doesn't assume that we can't identify any beautiful objects until we have the standard of taste. In fact, he assumes that we already know a number of examples which objects are beautiful. So he assumes that we can. We do know that Homer's beautiful and that Milton and Addison are superior. The objection represents him as saying that we're totally in the dark about which objects are beautiful until we get the standard of taste. But if we know that Homer's beautiful, Milton's beautiful, Addison is beautiful, all of these things, then we can tell whether a critic has practice. Has he read Homer? Has he read Milton? Has he read Addison? Okay, well, that's good because we know that they're beautiful. What I think we have to return to is what he says about what a standard of taste is. It's a rule for resolving disputes, hard cases, in which we're not sure which of the two things are beautiful. It doesn't seem to be, and it doesn't seem to be sold as, a rule for determining uh, which things, including the uncontroversial cases, are beautiful.